Hello, I'm Noel Lim on ASEAN Speaks by Maybank. In today's weekly briefing, we discuss the outperformance for the next six months within Asia-Pacific, emerging market currencies outlook, and Malaysia's equity strategy and economic expectations in the second half of this year. Portfolio strategist Ong Seng Yao discusses with the analysts. Good morning uh, and welcome to the call. The highlight uh, of last week was the market's focus on de-anchoring inflation. US 10 years uh, basically rallied very sharply on Friday following the weak ISM manufacturing data, which fell about 13 basis points and it's now way below uh, 3%. This was the also the third consecutive drop for the week. Uh, on the risk of recession, we look at the consensus range of economists poll on the probability uh, of this event happening. That range is still very wide, but uh, if you look at Bloomberg, the percentage of uh, uh, professionals calling for recession is creeping up, and I think it's at about 30% uh, mark at this moment. For this week, ISM services data will be coming this Wednesday, uh, and that set of data, based on consensus, uh, is also pointing towards uh, a weakening set of numbers. Uh, to avoid economic contraction, the market's focus will inevitably turn to employment data. And to that note, we have the U.S. non-farm payrolls this Friday, where consensus sits at 270,000 K. So this week, uh, we will build our conversations around this theme of weaker growth, and uh, especially what this means for Malaysia. So I'd like to invite my first speaker onto the call. He's uh, Hanshin, our portfolio strategist. Uh, Hanshin, in your latest report, you reminded clients that inflation expectations have in fact peaked. Uh, and this could be read from the difference between the U.S. Uh, uh, Treasury inflated uh, protection, uh, protected security and the 10-year UST. Are we there yet? That's the big question. Hanshin? Hey, thanks, uh, Sengyao. Um, yeah, in terms of the 10-year uh, inflation expectation um, implied from the US 10-year inflation break-even, we are seeing that um, it has reached a record high of 3% during the Russia-Ukraine war crisis. And we see that coming down sharply to levels of about 2.33% right now, uh, which is also one standard deviation above the current, uh, above the historical mean. Um, so short term wise, um, it's good news for the market. Inflation pressure has eased somewhat. Um, however, these levels are still considered as high based on historical standard. And I think we will need to see further stabilization of the inflation expectation around these levels. Okay. Uh, Anshin, if we look at the markets and uh, where they are at right now, uh, economic steam, uh, things, a recession is still remote, but that still leaves open the high possibility of a stagflationary environment, uh, slow economic growth and very sticky inflation. Uh, what are your recommendations for a uh, stagflation environment, Anshin? Yep. Um, we have done a scenario analysis and we have uh, basically separated the growth environments into high, medium and low growth environments while assuming that inflation expectations continue to be high. And at the very least, we are likely to have moved away from a high growth environment to a medium growth environment, at least uh, based on the latest uh, number from the US ISM manufacturing PMI, which is um, at 53. So with this move, we see that um, value stocks will become relatively less attractive, while quality stocks are likely to become 
relatively more attractive. And hence, um, we recommend that um, investors should invest in quality stocks, uh, which are stocks with a high ROE, low debt to equity, and also high earning certainty, where valuations have also fallen from um, high levels uh, a year ago to now trade at quite attract- uh, at very attractive levels. Okay. Um, Hanjit, what is the biggest scope for outperformance uh, then over the next six months within Asia Pacific? And is this China amid the you know, a lot of... Uh, uh, talk and hype on, on the media side about its reopening and credit expansion? Yep. Um, we see China's expansionary policies as um, providing a relatively safe place for investors to hide, especially when uh, globally central banks are uh, in a tightening mood. And also market volatilities in China stocks have fallen sharply from very high levels. And this indicates that uh, market hand sentiment has recovered from uh, is one, one of its worst levels that we've seen since global financial crisis. And hence, we think that um, Chinese stocks are the ones most likely to outperform over the next six months in Asia PAC. Okay, that's great. Uh, Hanjit, last question for you. Uh, you also track the active fund flow. That means basically funds flow from active fund managers as opposed to passive fund managers. You track this set of data uh, for the Asia-Pac region as well as for uh, US as well. What are your key observations, uh, uh, especially for Asia and uh, uh, the Malaysia market? Yep. Um, So um, for for this, we basically rely on mutual funds data based in fact set. Um, In terms of Malaysia, what we observe is active funds have been increasing positions, especially active uh, positions on press metal and Petronas chemicals. Um, While there were also increasing positions sharply on on plantation stocks, but plantation stocks still remain as an underweight uh, in general. While on the passive funds, we also noticed that um, stocks such as uh, Nestle, PPB, and IOI Corp have increased interest, um, uh, basically due to, uh, mainly due to fund flows from uh, funds such as low volatility funds, SRI funds, and also natural resources funds. Okay, all right. Thanks very much, Hanjit. Uh, okay, now let me bring uh, Winston, uh, who is our fixed income strategist, onto the call. Winston, let me first ask you what underpins the S&P's latest revision uh, of Malaysia's outlook uh, to stable. And is this development expected to help the ringgit and Malaysia's bond market? Hi, morning, Senghil. Yeah, S&P last week, they had revised Malaysia rating outlook back to stable from negative, uh, while also reaffirmed the rating at A-. minus. This comes after two years of negative outlook that had been in place since June 2020, the height of the pandemic. Um, while it was not mentioned explicitly uh, in the SMP report, I think the outlook increase was actually driven by um, the SMP upgrade on the assessment of Malaysia economic profile to a level uh, that is even higher than uh, pre-COVID. In terms of the score previously, the S&P actually as Malaysia economic uh, profile um, to be uh, four, but now it has raised it to three because of some uh, positive notching. And positive notching basically just means uh, they are giving a higher score than what is um, indicated from the baseline assessment. And I would say this is a major change 
because by upgrading the economic profile of Malaysia, uh, the S&P rating now allows a larger debt capacity for Malaysia. And going forward, I would say in terms of the sensitivity of Malaysia rating um, uh, to government indebtedness and also fiscal performance, uh, it will be less sensitive. For example, Malaysia currently has a statutory debt ceiling at 65% of GDP. So even if this goes up to 70 or 75% or equal, the S&P still can maintain Malaysia rating at uh, A- minus and perhaps stable outlook. So in terms of market imp uh, implication, I think the overall impact is going to be uh, neutral, both to the bonds and I think to a certain extent, the FX, let's say in terms of foreign demand. It does remove a layer of uncertainty, but uh, it's a stable outlook. So I don't think there'll be a major impact on the market. Okay. Uh, Winston, if you look at the uh, US Fed funds rate, uh, that will soon exceed Malaysia's uh, OPR. Is this yield differential the key metric to watch that will determine domestic and foreign funds flow for, for, for the credit markets? Uh, and if not, what should we be watching given that on July 6th, I think Bank Nagar Malaysia is largely expected to announce uh, an OPR rate, rate hike? Yeah, if the Fed hike rates by 75 BIP at the FOMC late, uh, meeting later this month, it will exceed the OPR unless the BNM also raised the OPR by 50 BIP uh, this week. So the yield differential between, uh, let's say, MGS and US Treasury um, has narrowed quite significantly, I would say, for example, the three-year uh, yield spread. At the beginning of the year, just six months ago, it was 180 bips. Now it has tightened to 60. So the question uh, is, is this going to cause let's say, huge foreign outflows from the ringgit bonds? I would say yield differential matters, but it's not the single driver of foreign demand. And based on our analysis, the correlation between yield differential and foreign flow is actually not uh, very strong. And if you look at the profile of Malaysia foreign holdings, I think we draw majority of the uh, foreign demand from major bond indices like the FUSI Russell, uh, Wigby Index and Bloomberg Barclays uh, Global Aggregate Index. So these funds tend to stay. And another angle to look at um, this, uh, whether narrowing yield differential will cause outflow is actually including the FX considerations. Because the dollar ringgit uh, FX forward points have compressed um, quite significantly, uh, actually turned negative. And this is interesting because when we talk about FX hedging for um, ringgit bond position to foreign investor, usually is a cost. FX hedging is a cost, but it actually depends on the forward points. The higher the forward points, the more expensive FX hedging. Zero forward points, zero cost. And now with the negative forward points, foreign real money investors are actually getting yield pickup. So if you look at it from FX hedge bond returns, it has actually improved tremendously. Okay. Uh, Winston, uh, one last question for you. And I think it's this question is more directed toward the, uh, uh, the traders uh, in that sense. If we look at the 10-year uh, US real use right now, it's probably slightly uh, just about 60 bips uh, thereabouts. This uh, level hit 1% back in 2018, uh, back in the 2018 cycle, about a year after Trump got, got elected. In your view, is that a better entry point for the ringgit-based uh, and uh, ringgit-based uh, uh, debt? Uh, and and if so, uh, should basically investors be buying shorter-term duration or longer-term duration securities? Um, one percent sounds about right to me. Although I would say uh, I would be selective because if we look at the real yield and the ten-year real yield, it has gone up quite substantially uh, year to date from. 
very deeply negative to now up 60 bit. And high real yield tends to dampen risk sentiment. And we look at the high yield uh, credit spreads in the US, it has actually widened quite substantially. And my only concern is that um, the 10 year US real yield might not have peaked. Although, although I think we are probably not too far from the, from the peak 10 year US real yield, perhaps uh, in the next uh, few months. Uh, why am I saying that uh, it might not have peaked yet? Because if we look at uh, the past tightening cycles, it tends to peak when the Fed is at the very advanced stage of uh, rate height cycle, like in 2018, in 2005 uh, to 2006, and also in 2000. And currently, an extra complication now is the US has uh, very high inflation. So the Fed will likely have to continue tightening and, until they see signs of uh, inflation slowing down. And that's one, or they started to see the US economy going into a recession. So I think um, the window is actually uh, quite quite narrow. So either uh, the inflation has to come down sharply, which I think will allow them to stop hiking uh, and even reduce interest rate. If not, um, yeah, that's going to be quite challenging because in some cases, it actually takes a recession to restore uh, price stability. Okay, great. Thanks. Winston, I would bring you back into this conversation, perhaps after Anand, but there's a question here on Indonesia that I hope you can take for us as well. Thank you. Uh, for the time being, let me just switch over to Andy, who is our FX uh, uh, strategist. Um, and the question to Andy is basically, why hasn't the EMFX capitulated the way that it did during the previous cycles? I mean, after all, we're staring at slowing export growth, rising food prices, and a super weak yen. We all remember what happened when the yen last hit 150 to the dollar in the in late 1990s, and the spillover and a negative spillover effect to the uh, to to Asia in particular. Uh, Andy, could you help us with this question, please? Uh, I think you <clears throat> indeed. Um, but uh, if you look at yen, it's actually year to date has uh, depreciated by about 15 percent. And I think some of the Asian currencies, uh, ASEAN currencies like Philippine peso is about 7.4%, followed by Thai baht as well. So it has fallen a bit. Uh, I, let me explain it in uh, probably three sort of uh, factors. One is on the portfolio uh, flow sort of um, uh, reasoning. I think if you look at previous cycles, we saw a larger EMFX uh, sell-off um, and we had expected that uh, this, uh, this time around, but it didn't happen due to um, in the last time, it's due to prior uh, foreign inflows into local equity uh, bonds, and hence the unwinding of those flows uh, led to the sharp uh, EMFX uh, sell-offs. Uh, the current cycle did not see as much prior foreign inflow at the, in the lead-up, probably because um, there was a bit of sell-off before that. Um, and, but in the last insight, FX insight that we shared in May, in terms of signposts, we actually cautioned that the current episode of the Asia-Japan sell-off around the period of S&P 500 sell-off appeared relatively mild uh, with losses only averaging about 3% uh, versus the dollar. Historically, Asia and Japan actually depreciate between around 3 um, and about 11, 3 to 11% on average during significant sell-off in the S&P 500 post-GFC. Uh, so potentially, there may still be room for further Asia and Japan decline if uh, macro fundamentals actually weaken further. And COVID subvariants, for example, turn more deadly or political uncertainties broaden. My second point is this uh, purchasing power factor. I think most central banks probably are intervening to smooth volatility. Uh, central banks are also raising rates in a measured pace. So that has actually led to a bit of um, constraint or mitigation in terms of some of the EMFX uh, weakness. Final point I just want to highlight is that in terms of macro fundamentals, 
it's still holding up uh, with exports and COVID reopening, helping to support some of our, our EMF, EM economies. Uh, rupiah was steady earlier, but recent softening in, in, in commodities outlook have actually weakened it, some of that support. And you've seen some of the growth, con growth concerns actually impacting everyone uh, in terms of perception of lagging in monetary policy. I think we just discussed that. The drags on current account due to elevated oil prices, all that has impacted uh, EMFX like Korean won, peso, uh, and yen to some extent as well because of the yields and, and Thai baht as well. So, Sengyao, I think those are some of the three key reasons. Portfolio uh, flows, stories, um, in terms of purchasing power, central banks intervening to make sure the purchasing power of their residents or countries or citizens um, do not um, sort of uh, weaken. And then the micro fundamentals still supporting somewhat, but there's still a long way more, like, like um, uh, Winston mentioned, there's still a long way more so that, uh, that the Fed can hide and still a long way more before it has, it has peaked in terms of a rates move, which may have impact on, on EMFX going forward. Uh, Andy, one last question for you. You know, I saw a uh, short Bloomberg clip uh, that was on uh, Mr. Mr. Yen, uh, uh, Sakakibara-san, uh, about a month back. And he said that uh, in all likelihood, I mean, well, he thinks that there's a possibility that the yen would actually hit 150 before the uh, BOJ intervenes. What's your view on the uh, yen? Would it hit that level? Our view is for now, our base case scenario, it could um, re possibly reach about 140. We are forecasting uh, the yen to peak somewhere between third quarter and fourth quarter before um, tapering back down towards a 132 level by end of this year uh, on the back of some dollar uh, sort of uh, softness or mild sort of retracement uh, by end of the year. So um, possibility of 140 possibly, but we're not looking at a worst case scenario, 150 or beyond 150. Uh, on the back of possibly the Fed moving already to a certain extent, um, signaling the most that it can probably by end towards the fourth quarter of this year and then tapering back down again. So yeah, so, I mean, 150 is not an uh, improbable uh, possibility, but that's not in our baseline for now. So, yeah. Okay, great. Thanks, Andy. Winston, let me just take uh, come back to you for just one last point uh, on Indonesian J's, uh, GBs uh, before I bring Anand on. Um, uh, you know, if we look at Indonesia's headline inflation last uh, week, uh, that just went above Bank Indonesia's target range in, in uh, uh, I think it was 4%, right? Um, and uh, BI has reiterated that there's no rush to hike rates. Do you think they are wrong? And uh, uh, this question is also framed in perspective of the spread between the 10-year into uh, GBs uh, over the historical range. Can you give us a view on that, please? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think there's a risk that uh, Bank Indonesia could actually uh, fall behind the curve uh, the longer they wait, um, especially when it comes to the inflation inflation problem, although for now, it seems that it's largely uh, cost-driven. And when it comes to uh, indoor GB, if I look at the 10-year uh, indoor GB, usually I would compare it to the 10-year US Treasury yield. And the spread currently is about 440 to uh, 450. It's actually below the long-term average of 500. In the past, when we are uh, talking about, let's say, under the market pressure, it actually can uh, go up to more than 600 or even 700 bips. So using these historical metrics as a, as a comparison, I would say indoor GBU, they don't look uh, very compelling to me. But of course, from a macro fundamental point of view, 
Uh, we have seen improvements in Indonesia in terms of one, managing domestic inflation has been a lot more stable. And second, in terms of the external positions, if you look at the current account surplus, uh, we, they, they had it, uh, they posted small surplus in 2021 and also uh, in the first quarter this year. So I would say overall, if you look at the macro fundamentals, it has improved. But um, one concern I have about Indonesia is um, it has benefited a lot uh, from the commodity boom. Uh, commodity boom and the problem is that we don't know how long uh, this can last and another key reason why I think um, 10 year Indo GB uh, is behaving a lot uh, more stable is really because uh, the huge support from the uh, central bank uh, because Bank Indonesia has bought a lot of government bonds and liquidity injections so uh, the current yields um, may not reflect the true pricing so I would want to see how the market behave first without BI support, then only um, to consider whether we are going to express a bullish view on the market. Okay, thanks very much for that, Winston. Uh, okay, now let's bring this all together uh, for the second half outlook for the equities market, in particular, the Malaysian equities market. Uh, our regional equities head of research, Anna, and his team just released uh, uh, a nice thick thematic report this uh, morning. Um, so I'd like to basically bring Anand on to uh, talk about the salient points of that report and what his strategy is for the second half of this year. Anand? So yes, we've just released our second half 2022 uh, market outlook for Malaysia. And I'm sorry to say, it's not a very bullish outlook. It is actually quite subdued and bearish on both the macro fronts as well as the equity market. Now, I'm just going to share with you uh, the cover page of that report, just to run through a few key points uh, that we've made so my colleague, um, you know, Chief Economist uh, Suaimi has cut his GDP growth numbers uh, for 2023 uh, to 4% uh, from 4.7%. And there are a couple of things here that are driving that, you know, uh, the fading of the reopening sugar rush, as we call it, uh, as, as macro stresses mount. What are these macro stresses? Uh, you know, the unwinding of policy stimulus, uh, rising inflation, rising interest rates. All this will weigh uh, on uh, growth prospects into the second half and 2023. Add to that a very volatile uh, policy mix due to uncertain politics, uh, and you have a recipe for a slowdown. On the equity side, we have also taken a similarly bearish sort of a cut to our numbers. We have been downgrading across the board uh, as we see more margin pressures emerging in the economy from rising input costs. We're also seeing an erosion in final demand for goods as consumers pull back. So that's uh, causing us to be a bit more uh, conservative on our KLCI outlook. We've cut our end KLCI uh, 2022 target or end 2022 KLCI target to 1,500, not very different from where it is now uh, compared to 1,710 previously. Okay, great. Um, uh, in, in this, uh, in this uh, case, if you look at it from a purely defensive standpoint, uh, would there be a sector or a list of stocks that you want the audience to hear about uh, before we end the call? Yeah, sure. I think the audience would want to break down the, their positioning of their portfolio into various baskets or, 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 or thematics. Uh, so there are three here, which I highlight on page 78 of the report. There's the reopening thematic where we're seeing you know, some good traction uh, among stocks, which are sort of consumer facing. Uh, which are, you know, we sort of focus more on the sort of consumer staples or consumer downtrading, which are more immune to the pressures I mentioned before on inflation. Stuff like Mr. DIY, uh, stuff like the REITs, uh, I've seen traffic recover as well. 
uh, and some of the leisure uh, and uh, hospitality stocks as well as borders have reopened and mobility has increased. This includes medical tourism as well, obviously. Then you have the inflation place where you know, we're looking at commodity stocks, uh, stocks with strong pricing power, staples like fresh, uh, farm fresh. Uh, also the banks from improving margins, uh, renewables uh, as well would be uh, in that basket. And also stocks which would protect you against a stagflation scenario, which is talked about a lot these days. That would be like utilities, you know, gas, Malaysia, telecom, uh, as well as again, healthcare, which is very defensive. And the final basket of thematics would be interest rates. And the good news here is corporates are not overgeared. So we don't see any systemic issues from rising interest rates, but it will erode earnings. Uh, but for some stocks, uh, which are net cash, like Petronas Chemicals, uh, Gas Malaysia, those are uh, very well positioned for rising rates. Uh, also, finally, technology stocks, uh, primarily because we are seeing uh, FX or the ringgit weakness persisting. So if you have a domestic cost base, but you're exporting in US dollars, you're bound to see margin expansion. Uh, and that would really be the tech sector, stocks like Inari and Vitrox. Okay, thanks, Anand. I'd like to invite uh, Suhaimi onto the call. Uh, and also get his thoughts in terms of whether there's anything else you would like to add on the Malaysian uh, macro, uh, the economy. So, Amy? Hi, thank you. Morning, everyone. Um, I think on, on Malaysia's second half uh, macro update and outlook, um, first and foremost, we maintain our 6% growth forecast for this year, comfortable with it uh, because of the sugar rush impact uh, of economic opening, including international border opening. And also, we have the fourth round of EPF uh, withdrawals, uh, the disbursement of which happened in April and May. Um, second quarter GDP growth should be faster than the 5% recorded in the first quarter of this year, as our monthly GDP tracker showed sustained uptrend in monthly GDP growth year to date. And we think quarter 2022 growth also should be, should be firm, uh, continue to remain firm uh, because of the effect boost from the uh, 4.5% year-on-year contraction in the quarter of last year as we were in that in and out of lockdown mode uh, during the course of 2021. But as mentioned by Anand, we trim next year's real GDP growth forecast to 4% from uh, 4.5% previously, uh, reflecting what I call withdrawal syndrome after the sugar rush, following the unwinding of policy stimulus and rising inflation. And the biggest effect on the unwinding of policy stimulus is Bank Negara's monetary policy, uh, we expect another 50 basis point hikes in OPR by Bank Negara second half of this year after the 25 basis point hike in May and we're surprising in another 50 basis point hike next year uh, to push OPR back to a pre-COVID-19 level of uh, 3%. And we estimate that every 25 basis point hike in OPR, it will shift our GDP growth by 0.2 percentage point uh, over a 12-month uh, period after the hike. There is also the downside of rising inflation as we expect faster annual inflation rate. Uh, from 2.5% last year, we're looking at 3.4% inflation rate this year and rising further to 4.1% uh, next year. Uh, this is on the inflationary adjustment in control ceiling prices and price subsidies for some essential food items recently. And we also expect something is going to happen in terms of review of fuel uh, subsidy uh, next year. So given this environment and outlook of rising interest rates and rising inflation, I think the key factor behind our down in next year's growth forecast is essentially the trimming of the uh, growth forecast for consumer spending 
and uh, investment uh, activities. And I just want to add lastly, at the same time, we should see a more visible impact of external headwinds uh, on our economic growth, uh, given that the US-led uh, global monetary policy tightening is gaining momentum and breadth in response to the rising and persistent uh, inflation. Uh, first quarter GDP growth for global economy already slowed down to 3.6% from 4.1% in the fourth quarter of last year. And this year, next year, we are looking at global economic growth uh, moderating to 3.3% and 3% respectively from 6.1% last year. But uh, there is downside of rising risk of hard landing, even recession in uh, major advanced economies. Thanks. Thanks, Zuhaimi. And I think uh, that's a nice close uh, for today. Uh, we've heard from the panelists that Basically, we're not there yet and that it's prudent to, to take a more defensive position. Thank you. Have a great week. As always, speak with your trading rep and check out Market Insights on the Maybank Trade app and follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I'm Noel Lim on ASEAN Speaks by Maybank. Maybank.